Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Hi, welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. This is Ashley Olander. And this is Art Middlecoff. And today we have our third Ask Art question. Dear Art, in our homeschool, I strive to be a Charlotte Mason purist. I do not want to get in the way of my children's learning, so I try to restrict my talking, seek not to interrupt their narrations, and do not question them to direct their learning. At the beginning of each lesson, I try to ask my children if they remember what they read last time. Sometimes I give a few words about what is coming up in the reading to rouse their interest. If pertinent, I may have a map of the geographic location or a piece of artwork by one of the masters that depicts the scene they are reading about. Why is calling what I do scaffolding inappropriate if I seek to be a Charlotte Mason purist? What should I call my actions instead of scaffolding? Yeah, I just love this question, Ashley. And uh, the reason is because I think seven months ago, no one really in the Charlotte Mason community, or virtually no one, would have been asking this question. So can you think of what might have happened maybe seven months ago that that might have raised this question in people's minds? Well, I did write an article on scaffolding called Building Without Scaffolds. And that that was really a groundbreaking article. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that article came to be. Sure. I was approached by Bridget of Charlotte Mason Soiree about hosting a mini conference here in Denver, Colorado. I, of course, said, sure, I would love to have everyone come and discuss Charlotte Mason. And she told me that uh, she would like me to do a workshop on scaffolding. So I thought, great, that's excellent. I, I know what scaffolding is. I can definitely teach people what I do in my homeschool. So I set off to do some research on scaffolding and just see what Charlotte Mason had to say about it. And lo and behold, I couldn't find the word scaffolding anywhere in the PR articles or her volumes. And it kind of left me scratching my head. Like, what is all of this scaffolding about? And am I doing too many things? Um, the more I started digging, the more I realized that I was adding more things to a lesson that I probably should have in the name of scaffolding. And I definitely don't feel like... Uh, it sounds like you set out to do a workshop on scaffolding. And uh, what kind of came out of that was an article that actually questioned whether scaffolding even has anything to do with a Charlotte Mason education. Correct. That's absolutely right. I, the elements that I had been using for scaffolding, some of them I couldn't even find in her writings. So not the word and some of the elements that I was doing were not there. So this was your, the first time you wrote an article for Charlotte Mason Poetry. And what, what was it like writing an article for CMP? Were you kind of pretty much on your own and just kind of tuned, you know, did you kind of turn it in just after kind of doing everything just completely solo and... Absolutely not. I, I definitely did not feel like I was on my own. I, ha I felt like I had the entire CMP team, including you, Art, behind me and helping me to kind of hash these questions out and helping uh, me find some articles and things that would help me with my research. So you weren't just kind of like a, a lone, you know, voice putting out that position, but uh, there was definitely some collaboration involved. And um, when the article came out, what were some of the first kinds of questions that, that were prompted by it? Well, after the article came out, the, the first couple of questions that I got were people thought that I said that you shouldn't be doing any preparation um, mm -hmm. in a Charlotte Mason education for lessons. And that's not what I was saying at all. There definitely are elements to prepare for Charlotte Mason education, but they aren't as involved as I originally thought it was. Okay, got it. And so what, and so what did that lead you to do next? So I wrote another article called Sharing the Effort to Know, and it goes over what the PNEU says is a teacher's role with the student and kind of just giving a little bit more information about what I do in my homeschool to prepare for lessons. So after you had that follow-up article talking about lesson planning and the Charlotte Mason method, did that pretty much you know, settle the issue? And did that settle pretty much all the remaining questions that people had about scaffolding in the Charlotte Mason method? 
not at all. (laughs) I was hoping that it would, but like our listeners' questions today, um, many people respond by saying things like, the examples of scaffolding in your article were pretty extreme. I don't do any of those. I just do what Charlotte Mason says to do, and I call it scaffolding. I just call it Charlotte Mason scaffolding. I see. So it, it kind of seems like maybe a lot of people maybe read your article and just kind of said, oh, well, this doesn't apply to me because, uh, you know, what Ashley said was scaffolding. I don't do that. And so I just do sh- scaffolding the Charlotte Mason way. So uh, I don't do these other kinds of things. So, you know, therefore just kind of move on and uh, just keep doing what I'm doing before. So if that's been a kind of the way some have responded, do you think that that's kind of an acceptable, I mean, are you happy with that result that some people would just say, great, I don't do any of these kind of excessive lesson planning elements or whatever. I just stick to pure Charlotte Mason scaffolding. Are you happy with that as kind of being a great final outcome for what the research that you've done? Absolutely not. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. So why not? Well, scaffolding is an educational concept that was developed by Lev Vygotsky, and he lived from 1896 to 1934, and his ideas are completely different from Charlotte Mason, and I don't believe in mixing other philosophies with her method. I believe when you're using a word that is invented by somebody else that has a meaning already, I feel like you're, you're stripping away the beauty of the Charlotte Mason method by mixing another term from a different philosophy in with hers. But this is an ask art, and I think people (laughs) want to know what you think about the scaffolding question, and how would you answer this listener's question, Art? Yeah, great. Okay, so um, I wanted to say, I mean, I really believe it took a lot of courage for you to write this article and to put it out because it was a fairly controversial position to take. But, uh, you know, since you're asking me the the question and the reader was asking Mm -hmm. me the question, I, I should acknowledge that I also had to think very carefully about putting out and releasing this article because uh, Charlotte Mason Poetry, we're not just kind of a neutral platform. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all of our articles are carefully chosen to promote an authentic interpretation of the Charlotte Mason method. And um, I appreciated, I anticipated that this might be a controversial article. Um, But in the end, I just decided that it's more important to me that we bring out what is authentic Charlotte Mason, even if it's not always going to be popular, and even if it might mean that some people might say that they don't want to hear what we have to say anymore. But that was kind of the the choice that I made, and I felt like it was the right thing to do. So are you saying that you don't think scaffolding is authentic Charlotte Mason? Well, I mean, so let's, in order to answer that, I I think we have to take a step back. and, uh, And I think the bottom line is, you know, we have to really get at what we mean by scaffolding. And uh, a lot of people will acknowledge with you and with your article that the term scaffolding came from Vygotsky and, uh, and, peop- and it's pretty common knowledge that scaffolding is used in, in certain ways in all kinds of school settings, well beyond Charlotte Mason settings. Um, but then people will say that even though it's Vygotsky's term, even though it's used in, uh, in other school settings, still in the Charlotte Mason world, scaffolding means something different And therefore, when we're in the CM world and when we're talking to other Charlotte Mason practitioners, you know, we can use scaffolding and Charlotte Mason people know what we we mean when we say that. So, I mean, is that kind of the perspective that you've heard? Yes, I hear that all the time that people just, people say, well, I use scaffolding in the Charlotte Mason way. And the problem that I hear with that is that there are so many people coming into this method that have all different kinds of backgrounds. Especially, I, I know lots of moms who come in for with an educational background from the public school system, and they absolutely have heard of scaffolding, and they've studied Vygotsky, and they've studied this uh, method of education. And so it, it, is, it is a method of education completely separate from Charlotte Mason. So this is why this is so scary to me to hear, well, I scaffold in a Charlotte Mason way, to me, doesn't even make sense. <laughs> right, right. I got it. And so I think what, what you're saying is that people maybe have come from other educational backgrounds where they associate scaffolding with a certain set of activities. Right. Um, and then, but then when they come into Charlotte Mason circles, they just need to get, you know, they, they, there's a risk that they might not, you know, make the transition and understand what Charlotte Mason scaffolding looks like. But to me, actually, I think it's not even really that simple. I think that it actually goes even deeper than that. And the, and the reason why I say that is because, 
even if we set aside, you know, other circles like other schools and, uh, and other groups and look at just within the Charlotte Mason community, um, what I've observed is that there isn't actually a kind of universal consensus about what scaffolding means in the CM community. So um, as, I've, as I've kind of looked around and I've read a lot of things and, and kind of looked at what's st stated in different blogs and in books and in articles, I, I've kind of found actually that uh, there's actually three different ways that I see the term scaffolding used within the Charlotte Mason community. So now I'm not even talking about public school teachers, private right. school teachers, people who are, you know, just have learned Vygotsky or constructivism or whatever. I'm talking about just, just core, you know, self-identified Charlotte Mason educators. And I'd like to take you through um, kind of the three ways that I've heard the term used. And okay. one way I've heard it used is that scaffolding is just a, you know, I've heard it claimed that scaffolding is just a synonym for the basic lesson introduction that's part of a standard Charlotte Mason lesson. And um, I read a uh, blog recently um, that it said it this way, and I'll just quote from the blog, quote, okay. scaffolding is simply reviewing the last lesson and connecting it to the new lesson. Reviewing the previous lesson should last about a minute. Okay. So this is basically saying scaffolding is just a thing. You know, scaffolding is just... Um, an activity, it's just another name for a standard element of the Charlotte Mason, you know, kind of lesson method, and it's the part where you do your basic introduction. Okay. So then the second way that I've heard scaffolding used in the community is uh, as a concept that's used to justify elements of a lesson that I don't see being described in Charlotte Mason's writing. So for example, I read also recently someone who wrote that, um, that one of the reasons why a teacher needs to pre-read um, before their child is so that the teacher can find essential elements that need to be in the child's narration. So then scaffolding is said to be the process by which the teacher corrects the narration. And so this person wrote, and I'll quote, just to clarify, Mason would have teachers pre-read everything. Those details your daughter missed would have been filled in by you through scaffolding, which is the part of the lesson where important people or dates or events are pointed out by the teacher, usually before the reading, to help focus the narration after. So, you know, Ashley, in your reading, have you ever found a place where Mason either corrects a narration afterwards or um, or kind of gives the the students some tips or clues as to what key ideas they don't want to miss and to make sure they capture in their narration? Absolutely not. Mason says it is not wise to tease them with corrections. And I would feel like those corrections would, in, in that kind of that helping them focus would be robbing the child from the knowledge they're supposed to be getting from the book. Right, I agree with you. And so in home education, Charlotte Mason said, it is very important that children should be allowed to narrate in their own way and should not be pulled up or helped with words and expressions from the text. Mm. A narration should be original as it comes from the child, that is, his own mind should have acted upon the matter it has received. So where did this person get the idea that scaffolding meant to be ready to guide and correct the child's narration? Well, that's actually, that's exactly it. I think that it came from the definition of scaffolding. Once people get a hold of the idea, they, they just think of ways to use it. Okay. I think that if we are looking for ways to scaffold, we're in danger from excluding the Holy Spirit in our lessons, that we are relying upon all these extra elements in order for our child to gain understanding, when ultimately we need to be stepping out of the way to allow the Holy Spirit to actually be the one to teach our child. In my own homeschool, I have seen this happen time and time again with my newest student. I have not shortened any readings for her. I have not done anything special for her. I haven't defined any words for her or anything. And the, her first experience with school was just this, this past December where I haven't done any academics with her yet. And we just got off our second term break and we came back and for our first Bible lesson, we, we haven't picked up from the story since, our, since probably a month. And my six-year-old actually gave me a better narration and connected our previous lesson from a month ago 
over my nine-year-old who's been doing this. And I just could not believe the detail in which she gave about Moses being up on the mountain and getting the 10 commandments from God. And when he came down and seeing all the Israelites worshiping this golden calf, and she even talked about how um, they burned the calf and they made all of the Israelites drink this and that they, and that God even killed people um, over this judgment and how she just had these vivid explanations of this passage. And I just sat there with my mouth open thinking, how, I did not do, I, I read her the Bible. She read and narrated and we had some discussion over it, but there wasn't any special element that I brought to this lesson. And I mean, the fact that my six-year-old could tell me in such great detail really was just telling to me that the Holy Spirit is at work in these lessons with my child as long as I allow him to work. That's right. And so I think the we're seeing here kind of the first you know, big danger of scaffolding is that in the name of scaffolding, we can introduce layers and activities and helps and things like that, that um, end up sort of pre-digesting what we give to our children. And so we end up doing the work of learning instead of allowing mm -hmm. our children to do the work of learning. And so for every time in the name of scaffolding, we go and do things like, you know, figure out what words we need to define in, in, in advance and figure out what concepts we need to explain in advance and so on. The more we do that, the more that we are pre-digesting for our children and taking away from them the opportunity for them to discover and gain and appreciate and uh, grow in their ability to, to gain from these things directly from the text themselves. Right. And haven't you, I, I know I've experienced this is we've come across a word that my child did not know. And I, I knew that they wouldn't know the word and, and didn't give them a definition. And, and if my child asks after I read, of course, I'll help them with the definition. But in most times, my son doesn't ask. And I've had my child ask me three weeks later what a word meant from a reading. And to me, that shows me that his mind has worked for three weeks trying to figure out what that word meant. I gave his mind food. And finally, he says, Mom, I just can't figure it out. And he looked for it in other places. But I, I would never want to rob my child of that experience, of that wrestling, of trying to figure out what those things are by just giving it to him and doing that work for him. So, and uh, I mean, have you ever heard it said that there's a parents review article that tells us that we're actually supposed to go and define words for our children in advance? No. <laughs> in fact, I've, I've read where Mason says that it, you destroy the meaning of the word by, by explaining it to a child. You destroy the text. So, um, so I, I, so Charlotte Mason says that uh, that we learn words in context, mm -hmm. uh, and that we don't need to define words up front. H. W. Household in his Parents Review articles says the same thing. The way we learn words is by hearing them in context, um, and so we don't need to define them up front. But when uh, when I've been in this discussion with people, they have often pointed to a article in the PNEU Journal from 1967. That's an article that was published 44 years after Charlotte Mason's death. And in this 1967 article, the writer says that in the narration lesson, the teacher should make sure that meanings of words are known in advance of a lesson. And so I've heard people say, well, because of this article written in 1967, takes precedence over what Charlotte Mason herself said about learning words in context and what H.W. Household said in the early years of the PNEU. And uh, the problem is that that's just not the way I approach interpreting Charlotte Mason. So for me, um, a 19, as much as I respect the later work of the PNEU and, and articles in the later articles in the PNEU journal, um, mm -hmm. you know, an article from 1967 to me doesn't, uh, can't overrule what Charlotte Mason herself has said. And to kind of put that in perspective, that very same year of 1967, the same volume of the PNEU journal, one of the writers claims that Charlotte Mason um, actually has children not begin with the history of their own country. And, uh, and uh, a writer asserts that in the Charlotte Mason method, you actually begin history with the study of the history of Roman Greece and not with the history of your home country. 
And so, you know, if we're going to say that we have to define words because of what we see in the 1967 PNEU journal article, then that also means that we need to stop beginning history with the study of the child's own history because a 1967 PNEU journal article says that you actually begin with Greece and Rome. You know, we can't have it both ways. Right. And I think a lot of it boils down to is too, is we have these moms who say, you know, I, I have a student that's not understanding. They're not narrating. They don't know what's going on. They need more help. And I think that this is where a lot of moms think that there are so many other things that are involved because of that's the way that we were taught. When in fact, we really need to be thinking about how, uh, how this child is, needs to interact and actually with, the, with this book and do that mind work. That they think, oh, you just read and narrate. Well, no, the narration is the work. The narration is that work of the child. The, the, the child needs to be, you know, using his mind to work. And I think that once we start thinking about scaffolding and started adding all these other elements, thinking that this child needs all this help, we're just stripping away that work for them. And so what you're describing about parents feeling like they need to achieve that, that, that parents who feel or mothers who feel that in order for the lesson to be successful, there's a certain threshold of understanding that must be attained by the child. And that's exactly what Henrietta Franklin speaks to. In 1902, um, Henrietta Franklin at a PNEU conference, she, she said, and I quote, how are we always to gauge what children exactly understand? Are we to be the arbitrators? And always to sift and choose just which portion of the children's heritage of literature we think that they are ready to take. Do we not make an unnecessary fetish of understanding? Mm. How often an idea will lie dormant, unsuspected in the mind and bear fruit in after years? Right. And who are we to know when God is actually going to use the knowledge that the child has and bring it to their mind? We don't know when that's going to happen. So we think that the child's not getting anything or not getting enough when in fact they, there's these seeds planted in their mind, in their heart, for God to maybe bring to the forefront later of their thoughts. And we don't know what that is. And so if we're pre-reading, if we're doing all of these things and expecting our child to know a specific set of information after a book, and that's really not it at all. You know, the child needs to get the food that they are going to receive. And we have no idea what that's going to be because that is between the child and the Holy Spirit. So Charlotte Mason said, quote, but a child of 10 cannot understand Shakespeare. No, but can a man of 50? Is not our great poet rather an ample feast of which everyone takes according to his needs and leaves what he has no stomach for? So when we decide what our children need to take out of Shakespeare, mm -hmm. not letting them take each according to his needs and leaves what he has no stomach for, just like a man of 50 cannot gain everything fully out of Shakespeare, but has to only take according to his needs. So if we're scaffolding or if we're preparing this lesson in order for our child to understand, then we're taking that away from them. And that leads to the third way I see the word scaffolding being used in the Charlotte Mason community. Um, and that third way is that scaffolding is used as an overarching paradigm that is said to explain Charlotte Mason's overall design for her entire educational method. And that may seem far-fetched, but in Lori Bestbotter's book, The Living Page, she writes, quote, here too, as in the whole of her curriculum, Mason's design allows for scaffolding, for knowledge to be built up slowly with the child's own connections lining the next handhold to new knowledge. So that sounds like scaffolding is not just a part of the Mason lesson, but everything is based on scaffolding? That's exactly right. So just looking through her book, here are some examples of what uh, she says is scaffolding in the Charlotte Mason method. So for natural history clubs, excursions, meetings, materials, and teacher training are all scaffolding. The book of firsts is scaffolding for a nature notebook. The My Word book is scaffolding for um, later learning. Learning foreign languages um, orally is considered scaffolding before going to the written word. And then the teacher keeps a word list, which is scaffolding for later French learning. 
The table of history is considered scaffolding for the book of centuries, which is in turn scaffolding for understanding the chronology of history. And, uh, and even the copy book is said to be scaffolding for the later commonplace book. Okay, so this is not just lesson intro and transition. This is saying that the whole entire activities in the CM method are scaffolding, like the copy book? Exactly. And that is where, that's why it's so important to understand how the word is defined. And I just, just to put this into context, Bestfather's book, The Living Page, is by far the most carefully researched and documented work on Charlotte Mason notebooks in the world. So somebody can get incredible information about Charlotte Mason and about the PNEU from this book. And so in the glossary of this deeply Charlotte Mason work, we find this definition, quote, scaffolding is a term used by Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky to describe the way adults may help children stand on the solid ground of what they know while they venture to build for themselves the next level of learning. So here an expert on Charlotte Mason openly acknowledges the link to Vygotsky. Right, exactly. And that's exactly what you did in your article, Ashley. So it's clear that in your article, when you showed that scaffolding came from Vygotsky, you weren't just making that up. And in fact, Bestfather didn't make that up either. As a matter of fact, as far as I know, the first article that I've been able to find in any Charlotte Mason context that explains what scaffolding is, introduced the term also by crediting uh, Lev Vygotsky. Um, what article is that? So it was in the winter 2007-2008 issue of the Charlotte Mason Review, and it's an article by Dr. Carol Smith entitled, Is Sequencing and Ordering the Curriculum Important for Scaffolding Learning? Hmm. And, uh, and in this article, he writes, quote, although scaffolding was not a term used in Mason's time, I believe she understood this concept very well. And so then Dr. Smith explains, you know, if it wasn't a term that was used in Mason's time, where did it come from? And he writes, quote, a brief introduction to the educational principle of prior knowledge and the work of Lev Vygotsky, a Russian educational psychologist, will shed light on the genius and necessity of Mason's use of sequence and order throughout the curriculum, quote. And then in a section entitled Vygotsky, Zone of Proximal Development and Scaffolding, he goes on to explain what scaffolding is. I heard about and read about the zone of proximal development when I was looking up scaffolding for my research. And that really was scary to me <laughs> to associate <laughs> that with Charlotte Mason. It definitely put the teacher in the position of master and uh, the dispenser of knowledge. Right. And so, you know, the zone of proximal development is another thing that, you know, it wasn't just kind of unveiled by your article, but, uh, but you were kind of continuing the thread of discussion that goes back to this, you know, 2007, 2008 article. And, um, and in this article, Dr. Smith, he asserts that the following elements uh, in the Charlotte Mason method are scaffolding. So number one, he says that the curriculum design itself is scaffolding. So the idea of teaching history chronologically and having a correlation between history and literature is scaffolding. And then secondly, he says that the entire narration lesson is scaffolding. So to quote, he says, the living book used through the correct narration process and the six essential steps, which I will explain, act as the scaffolding support that helps the child bridge the zone of proximal development, that space between what the child already knows and can next learn with assistance. That doesn't sound like Charlotte Mason at all. <laughs> well, so I mean, I think here we have kind of a total disconnect in how the Charlotte Mason community thinks of scaffolding because, you know, we have a whole set of people on the one hand, like in the blog that I quoted, which say that scaffolding is just a small component of mm -hmm. a Charlotte Mason lesson. And that's kind of what our questioner said, you know, like I, I do transitions, I do a short intro, I show, uh, I show a map sometimes, and I call that scaffolding. But, mm -hmm. uh, but that, that's kind of very disconnected from what uh, Dr. Smith said, because he says that all six components of the entire narration process become, quote, successful scaffolding for children. And so he labels the components, all six. He says, teacher introduces the new text. Number two, student recreation of old text. Number three, reading of living book text. Number four, narration of living book text. Number five, grand conversation. Number six, closing. He says that all six of those are actually scaffolding. So all six of those elements need to take place in a lesson, and it's called scaffolding. 
it seems like it's a rewriting of the method of lesson from home education. Well, it's kind of rewriting it from the perspective of it's expressing it in a way that reflects a paradigm of scaffolding. And, you know, those six steps are not exactly the way that, um, that Mason describes the structure of a narration lesson. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the fact that he calls all of the entire narration lesson, including even the reading of the living book, the fact that he calls that scaffolding leads me to the biggest point that I really would want people to take away from this podcast. And that mm-hmm. is the idea that scaffolding fundamentally is not a what, but scaffolding okay. is a why. What do you mean by that? So a what is something that is used in education, like a copybook, a book of centuries, a curriculum sequence, a narration. That's what I mean by a what, but a why is why we do something. So a copybook is is a what, but why we use it. It could be thought of as scaffolding if that is the reason it's used, but if you're another person like me who doesn't believe in scaffolding, you might describe a copybook as being something different. So scaffolding is the reason you do something. It's not the thing you do. Okay. So how does this make a difference? Well, so that's the crux of the issue. As soon as you call something scaffolding, you're not just uh, giving it a classification. You're actually assigning a reason for why it's being done. And that starts to shape your whole thinking about that particular lesson element. Once you call something scaffolding, you're assigning a purpose for it. And so once you believe, for example, that um, Charlotte Mason organized her whole method around the philosophy of scaffolding, then the logical uh, next step for that is to do what Bestfather says to do in her book. She says, quote, we look for ways to scaffold and are patient. Okay, so that explains the second group. People who add things to the lesson because they say it is scaffolding. If Mason says to scaffold, then we need to look for ways to do it. Right, and doesn't that make sense? I mean, if you, if you believe right. that, um, that she organized her method around scaffolding, wouldn't you naturally want to try to extend that principle wherever you can? Well, absolutely. As, you know, that I would feel like that is a, the proper way to teach her method to my students. Right. So an example of where you would uh, apply this would be, uh, so on page 54 of Home Education, there's a, there's a sentence in which Charlotte Mason says, quote, it's a capital plan for the children to keep a calendar. The first oak leaf, the first tadpole, the first cowslip, the first catkin, the first ripe blackberries, where seen and when. So she describes this thing on page 54. Mm-hmm. And um, Bestwater interprets this to be referencing a new kind of notebook called a book of firsts. And she says that the book of firsts is there to scaffold the more involved lists to come. So because she believed that scaffolding was an underlying principle in Charlotte Mason's approach, she naturally assumed that this sentence was referring to a kind of pre-nature notebook kind Mm -hmm. of scaffold. But then what I, I was really struck when I read a 1909 article by Christine Cooper of the House of Education, who interprets this exact same passage from Home Education, and she says that that's actually describing the standard nature notebook. So since Bestvater believed that Mason used scaffolding, she used that to interpret Mason's writings in a different way from the House of Education students. That's exactly right. And that's, that's an example of why I personally am so insistent upon challenging the paradigm that people have when they approach Charlotte Mason's writings. Um, so, you know, if you followed the, the, my articles in Charlotte Mason Poetry, you'll know that, you know, I assert again and again that if we believe that Charlotte Mason is a classical educator, then we're going to read classical ideas into her writings. And similarly, if we believe that Mason understood scaffolding in line with Vygotsky, then we're going to read scaffolding into her writings. So if I go back to the original question, I am a Charlotte Mason purist. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that I'm a perfectionist or that I implement the method perfectly. I mean, I'll confess before all of my listeners that my homeschool is not a model of a perfect and pure Charlotte Mason implementation. I mean, honestly, I do the best I can because I believe in and I trust the method. But when I say that I'm a purist, I mean that I'm pure with the ideas 
and I, and I just don't compromise. So when I try to understand Charlotte Mason, I don't go looking for help from Lev Vygotsky or David Hicks. I don't give Mason the credit for the work of later educators. Instead, I do my best to try to be like Christine Cooper of the House of Education. And I study the method on its own terms and I teach the method and I trust the method. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. When you want to learn about something, you should go to the source and read her works. Yes, you go to the source and you read her works, but remember that we can never read in a vacuum. And so we, ha- we always right. examine the paradigms that we're bringing. And, and uh, these paradigms of scaffolding are coming from others in the Charlotte Mason community. So, um, so we go to the source, but you know, it's typical for someone to go to the source after having read Lori Bestbotter's book or Dr. Smith's mm-hmm. article. And so we go to the text saying, okay, I get it. I understand that Charlotte Mason knew scaffolding. So I'm going to find scaffolding in these writings. And that's going to be the grid upon which I'm going to organize the different concepts and thoughts and suggestions and so on that I see written in Charlotte Mason's writings. Yep. I can see where having all those extra opinions can definitely change yours and have you looking for something that doesn't exist in her writings. Right. So what is your second example? So my second example of where this can make a difference is how we explain elements of the lessons. So going back to the example I gave from the blog that said scaffolding is simply reviewing the last lesson and connecting it to the new lesson. Um, Mm -hmm. Reviewing the previous lesson should last about a minute. That was called scaffolding because there's a belief about why that step was included. And um, it's believed that, that we need to review the last lesson and connect it to the next one because that's necessary to scaffold the learning. It's believed that that's needed to help the child enter the zone of proximal development. So it's believed that that's, uh, that that's needed to help the child to be able to be on a solid enough ground or a solid enough footing to be able to get at the real meat of the lesson, right? So right. It's scaffolding is like the stepping stone. It's like saying, okay, you know, we've got this text in front of you, but before, you know, child, you're going to be able to access the real living thought and the vital truth of the lesson. We've got to kind of give you this stepping stone of the lesson transition. And so that's why it's called scaffolding. And so that's why in our original question, the questioner talked about showing maps. And so let's say, you know, showing why do we show maps in a Bible lesson or why do we consult a Bible commentary in a Bible lesson? Is it because we're scaffolding? Are we bringing out the map because the child needs that aid that otherwise wouldn't be necessary if the child had a more mature learning? And so what happens is uh, when, when scaffolding is adopted by the Charlotte Mason community, certain elements are called out and expressly given that label. This is the scaffolding for a Bible lesson. Scaffolding for a Bible lesson is using the Bible atlas and using a commentary. And why is that a problem? Well, what would those things be? What would the Bible atlas and what would the commentary be if they weren't scaffolding? If you couldn't call the, if you, if you bring out a Bible atlas as part of a Bible a lesson, but you weren't doing it for the purpose of scaffolding, why would you be doing it? I think that's kind of where the confusion is, is we're saying don't add things, but then there are things that you, sh- that you can be doing, right? Like to make the lesson living. There, there are elements of the lesson that make it living that should be there. And not because the child has to have those things in order to be able to gain an understanding. We believe that, that we have faith in the child, that they're going to be able to gain an understanding without those elements or not. But, you know, Charlotte Mason talks about furnishing the mind with ideas and the imagination and drawing pictures in their mind. Those other elements help the students to to do that, not necessarily help them to completely understand, but it helps to draw those images in their mind. Like she talks about how geography furnishes the mind with ideas. And I think that that's how all these other things, all these other elements are coming into play. Right. So the use, the use of pictures and maps in a geography lesson are not there as scaffolds to enable cognitive readiness. They're there to furnish the mind with ideas. And I think it's wrong for us to suppose that the only way that the mind can get ideas is through the text of a book. The mind can also get ideas through the paintings of the masters, for example, or the mind can be furnished with ideas by looking at pictures from a travelogue as part of geography understanding. And um, to refer to those, to kind of denigrate those things as scaffolds and say that those are just aids until the place where, you know, the, the child can grow into a mature learner and no longer needs to rely on 
pictures from the masters or maps in order to be furnished with ideas. I just think that that's a fallacy. I think that's the wrong way to refer to these things. And so I, I would object to pulling out components of a geography lesson and saying these are component, these are scaffolds, but this is the real deal. Because I think that a living geography lesson for learners of all ages is going to have a wide range of different lesson elements that are all equally able to furnish the mind with ideas. Right, exactly. How could you have a geography lesson without a map? <laughs> I mean, right? How could you have that? And and these aren't things that you're going to give, you know, w with a history lesson. If you're going to bring out a picture, you're not going to do that up front because that is robbing the child of using their imagination. So we want them to be able to use their imagination and to put these things into place in their mind and do that work in their mind. And then afterwards, show them, okay, here is a painting from the master's that gives you a little bit more detail of what we just read. And so I've actually had comments from my students like, oh, that's a little bit different than what I thought in my mind. And if I would have given them to, given that to my student up front, then they would have been using, they would have been trying to interpret the story based off of what I've, what I've given them and not actually using their mind. And then now, oh, look, this is something different. And now we can have a discussion over that, right? Like he, they, they can actually, my student can now understand his position a lot better by being able to explain, oh, well, this is not what I thought in my mind. And this is what you showed me. Yes. And so think about Charlotte Mason's poems, The Savior of the World. So I, as somebody who has been studying the Bible since I was 16, I read the Savior of the World poems after gospel readings, and I find that this poetry by Charlotte Mason brings elements of the gospel narratives to light and to life for me in a deeper way and allows me to enter deeper into the concepts of the scriptures. And it's my experience of reading the Savior of the World in conjunction with a gospel passage, is that scaffolding my learning? No, it's not. And, and so if we have, I mean, are we reading uh, the poems of the Savior of the World to enhance a Bible lesson? Is that scaffolding? Is that just because we need to give children a little bit of help? Because if they were more mature learners, they'd be able to just get everything out of just the text themselves, and they wouldn't need the poems, or they wouldn't need, you know, to, to look at Patterson Smith and, and some of the additional insights that, that have been gained by, by teachers and students of the Bible over the centuries to help us to bring to even more deeper life and truth. Um, is that just a crutch? Is that just a scaffold that we use until we can get to the point where we can dispense with all of these su supplements and just with just me and my Bible be able to grasp and, and engage in the purest living thought? No, I don't think that those elements are needed for you to be able to understand those passages or to actually, or to have direct contact with the Holy Spirit. I believe that those elements can help illuminate things that you may not have seen before or give you something else kind of to think about. Right. So I'm not, I'm not saying that you need, I'm not saying that one needs those things in order to be able to encounter the scriptures. So then the question becomes, if it's not scaffolding, then what is it? If, if we as persons are able to go to scripture directly and derive truths from the scriptures, then why do we need these other elements? If it's not scaffolding, why include them? If it's not scaffolding, why include poems from the Savior of the world as part of a Bible lesson? If it's not scaffolding, then why include looking at a Bible map as part of a Bible lesson? If it's not needed for us to be able to draw nourishment and sustenance from the Bible, then why do we do these things? Because it's part of the whole lesson, and the whole lesson is living. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so when Charlotte Mason in her chapter on the great recognition, she said that, quote, we shall perceive that whatever is stale and flat and dull to us must needs be stale and flat and dull to him. And also that there is no subject which shall not have a fresh and living way of approach. And so the idea here is that lessons are not split up into two portions. There's not a scaffolding portion, which is the kind of a uh, dull sort of preparatory step that sets the stage and sets the table for the living element. The, the atlas is not some kind of dry preparatory mm -hmm. set apart element here that allows you to then be able to enter into the living portion. Instead, the whole lesson is living. And so what I would say and throw out for consideration is the idea that looking at a map in a Bible lesson is living. 
and it's just as living as looking at the Bible itself. And uh, some people might say, well, that's, you can't say that art because that's putting, how can you say that, that looking at, an, at a map is as living as looking at the Bible text itself? And is that a problem? Is it a problem to say that? Ultimately, it depends upon what we believe about the Bible, about the earth, and about the Holy Spirit teaches us. What I want to bring out here is that when we divide a lesson into the living portion and the scaffolding portion, mm-hmm. we're making a separation between the, the living truths and the kind of supporting ideas. And what I want to point out here is that that's just not the way I don't believe that God teaches us. And so as an example here, you know, when God teaches us theology, he could have just handed us a systematic theology textbook, but he didn't. He gave us his word and his word is a story. And it's a story about real people that took place in a real world. And that story, the story, the narrative accounts in scripture are not just scaffolding so that we can get at what really matters, which are certain abstract theological truths. But the story is living. And the story is essential. When we know the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus calmed the winds and the waves, we're not just scaffolding, we're discovering the story in a living way. These things are not so much necessary precursors as much as they are just additional elements of the feast. Correct. And they, they, it reminds me of the science of relations because it's just that, it's that natural curiosity. It's that, it's that well, you're, you're reading about a place so you want to be looking at a map or you're talking about a story and you have seen a beautiful painting from the masters that you, that you would want to look at. And that doesn't mean that you can't understand the passage because you don't have those elements. It just means that those are living elements of a lesson that can bring it, help answer those natural questions that come to your mind. Right. right. And so the, the Charlotte Mason method has really transformed my own personal approach to studying the Bible, because in my reading of you know, the Old and New Testament, I would just kind of mentally skip over all of the references to geography and place and setting in the New Testament account. Mm-hmm. And what Charlotte Mason has helped me to understand is that geography is part of the living story of scripture. And so I think it is the science of relations because I don't just have a relationship with the abstract theological truths that are unfolded in the gospels, but I want to have a relationship with the Sea of Galilee. And I want to have a relationship with the Jordan River and the places where John the Baptist was baptizing. And I want to understand uh, Judea and the places where Jesus walked. And it's not that these are Uh, necessary um, stepping stones so that I can get at the deeper truth, but rather these are additional elements of the banquet, additional elements of the feast. Geography has become for me in my personal Bible study an additional element of the feast so that when I enjoy God's word, I'm enjoying God's geography as part of that. And so what I want to say here is that including a Bible atlas in your child's uh, Bible lesson is not scaffolding. It's not like cognitive readiness so that they'll be able to, otherwise, to, to grasp what would otherwise be some kind of impenetrable concept in the gospel. But rather, it's inviting them to a lifelong habit of looking to maps and geography as a way to have, through the science of relations, a greater connectedness with, with the, the fuller elements of God's revelation. This is a lifelong part of living Bible lessons, and uh, commentaries can be not just a scaffolding for learners of all ages, but they can be ways for us to share with the minds of others to help us look at and be part of the feast and look at the scriptures from, from other viewpoints. And I think that Charlotte Mason's Savior of the World can be part of that banquet and part of that feast as well. It reminds me of when Charlotte Mason talks about furnishing the mind with the imagination and how, you know, with history or with Bible, with, the, with these other elements that you're talking about, they help to draw a picture in, in your imagination, in your mind to help put you in that place, in that time with that person in their thoughts. Right. And these are living activities as part of living lessons that we never grow out of. So, you know, when Dr. Smith describes scaffolding, he says that one could, quote, one could think of this zone, the zone of proximal development, as the area between a child's layer of prior knowledge and the layer that he can reach with some assistance. So the idea here is that scaffolding, and by definition, the whole word image, scaffolds don't remain on buildings forever. Eventually, at some point, you finish the building and you take the scaffolds down. But, and so eventually, the child outgrows scaffolding. But, you know, there are some things, these things, these things we don't, we never grow out of. We never grow out of them. We never grow out of nature notebooks. 
We never mm-hmm. grow out of books of centuries. I write my, I keep my own book of centuries and it's not to scaffold my learning of chronology. I ne- we never grow out of Bible maps. We never grow out of looking at pictures from tra- travelogues. We never grow out of looking at Bible commentaries. We never grow out of being able to transition and connect what our next reading is with what we read previously. That's part of what it means to be a human being. That's part of being a person. It's the organic way that we learn and it's the organic way that we enter into the relationship with all knowledge. Yeah, and enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, all of these elements help me to have a deeper relationship with my Savior, even at this time in my life, like the my, my Nature Notebooks, the Books of Centuries. All of these things help me to have a clear picture of connecting with my Savior as an adult. And these things are too precious to be referred to as temporary structures like scaffolds. I don't want the scaffolds to go away. I want them to be lifelong possessions. Yes. So here's a quote from volume three, page 75. What then have we to do for the child? Plainly, we have not to develop the person. He is there already with possibly every power that will serve him in his passage through life. Someday we shall be told that the very word education is a misnomer belonging to the stage of thought when the drawing forth of faculties was supposed to be a teacher's business. We shall have some fit new word meaning, perhaps applied wisdom, for wisdom is the science of relations. And the thing we have to do for a young human being is to put him in touch so far as we can with all the relations proper to him. So she didn't say to scaffold him. She didn't say that we need to develop the child by making sure that they have a set bit of knowledge before they leave. She's saying that we need to put him in touch with the right relations to him. And that, that kind of reminds me of like the book of centuries, of the, of, the, of the nature notebook, of all of these elements that we are teaching our children, all these habits we're getting them into in, the, in their early life that will carry them through the rest of their life. But you're right. I like, I like how you're explaining it, that there's not two separate parts. There's not an introductory part, and then there's not a living part. It's all one cohesive living lesson. Right, exactly. And so I think, I think to me, there's kind of like two sides to this danger of scaffolding. The first one is that we start to insert elements into the lesson model that weren't present in the original because we think we need to help the child along the way. And uh, in, in contrast to, you know, Elsie Kitching, who said in her article on the meeting that, that we should allow the child to meet the mountain on his own without all kinds of elaborate scaffolding in place. But I think that there's a, there's a companion concern that I have about scaffolding, which is that we undervalue the intrinsic elements of a lesson that Charlotte Mason did include. And so then we treat Bible, you know, use of an atlas, use of a commentary, use of pictures in geography lessons and so on. We, we treat those things by treating them as scaffolding. We put them in a lower position than what they were really intended, which are to be true living elements of a lifelong process of learning. So, so those are kind of, I think, the twin challenges of scaffolding is leading us to include elements in the lesson that we shouldn't. And then secondly, leading us to undervalue or to treat as just temporary helps to cognitive readiness, as opposed to essential living activities as part of the feast. Um, and so we, we treat things like the book of centuries as a mere scaffold instead of a true instrument of living teaching. So the last part of the question is, what should I call my actions instead of scaffolding? I think that we should call them what they are instead of assigning them a label that's explaining why we do them. So I don't think that there's necessarily one consistent word that can be used to describe the inclusion of a map in a geography lesson. Why isn't that just the overall method of lesson for a geography lesson? Uh, Why do we need a word to describe certain elements of a Bible lesson? Why aren't those things just part of the organic method of lesson for a Bible lesson in the Charlotte Mason method? So I'm not sure that there is a single term that can be used to capture all the things that today 
are, are associated with the label scaffolding because as we've seen in this discussion, things have been assigned the label scaffolding that range from lesson intro all the way to a book of centuries, all the way to the entire curriculum itself has been called scaffolding. And so instead of using that word to describe it, we need to talk about the lessons as the method of lesson that Charlotte Mason described. And we need to be recognizing that each element of a lesson as Charlotte Mason described it is there for a living purpose. And each element is there as part of the feast and part of the banquet. Right. So I think that when you start picking apart these, the method of lesson, that's when you really become in danger of mixing terms and using something, using something that doesn't belong. But also I think that each subject is taught in a living way. And you can't, like you said, you can't have one term that is going to be broad enough to cover every single element of every single subject of the part of the lesson that's living. So I think that CM educators really need to understand how each lesson is taught to the student and which elements are involved in that lesson to make it a whole living lesson, not just, okay, well, I'm going to call this scaffolding and this is what I do for this subject, or this is what I do for this subject. There are, like you said, there are specific elements that go to each lesson that are involved that are not scaffolding. And didn't Charlene Mason write that a false analogy has hampered or killed more than one philosophic system? That's right. And I think that um, she did say that because these allegories, these metaphors, these analogies, these paradigms that we use are extremely powerful. And so if we think of our atlas as a temporary throwaway scaffold, it's going to change the way we feel about it. And I think we need to take a step back and look at the metaphors that we're using to associate with a Charlotte Mason education. And uh, one, one um, article that I have great respect for is uh, Dr. Stephanie Spencer of the University of Winchester wrote a scholarly essay published in the book, Women, Education, and Agency, 1600 to 2000. And she wrote a chapter on Charlotte Mason where she summarized Charlotte Mason's philosophy and her place in history. And she didn't title that chapter scaffolding, you know, she didn't entitle, she didn't entitle that chapter how Charlotte Mason discovered scaffolding before Lev Vygotsky. You know, she didn't title that chapter how scaffolds can be used to build the structures that we call children or how scaffolding can be used to turn a child into a man. Instead, she entitled that chapter, Knowledge as the Necessary Food of the Mind. And Charlotte Mason's ninth principle explains this. Uh, her ninth principle says, we hold that the child's mind is a spiritual organism with an appetite for all knowledge. This is its proper diet with which it is prepared to deal and with which it can digest and assimilate as the body does foodstuffs. And so the child is hungry for knowledge. The child is hungry for pictures and for the works of the masters. And the child is hungry for the maps and to understand what the Nile looks like. And the child is hungry for the stories and the truths of scripture. And, uh, and this hunger is what we feed with the rich variety and all of the great elements of a Charlotte Mason method. We are feeding the child. We're not scaffolding the child. And so we need to be in the business of serving up food, not serving up tools for cognitive readiness. And so Dr. Spencer writes, quote, in Mason's writings, the frequent use of the metaphor of food and feeding for intellectual as well as spiritual appetites is notable. This metaphor draws on both the expected female role of nurturer and biblical references to the role of God in feeding spiritual hunger. Mason's writing style might in places appear homespun, but within the context of her time, her ideas for a classless and genderless education were highly innovative. So you see what, what Dr. Spencer is saying is that the fundamental metaphor that she identified to characterize the Charlotte Mason method is not building at a construction site, but it's sitting around a table. What do you mean by sitting around a table or at the table? Well, right. And so I don't mean, so when I think of the expression sitting at the table, I don't just think of mealtime. I don't just think of the dinner table. I also talk, I also think about the sacred table. I mean, what, what did Jesus say was the the main activity that we should be doing always in remembrance of him we are to be breaking the bread we are to be drinking of the blood and remembering him we're at his table and so when jesus said to remember him he said to do so 
by feeding, sitting at the table and consuming. And, uh, you know, in my talk, which you, you can hear on the podcast, in my talk entitled The Sacrament of Education, I explain that Charlotte Mason's overall paradigm, in her own words, it's not the classical paradigm or the Vygotsky paradigm, it's a sacramental paradigm. She believed that the Holy Spirit facilitates living lessons in which we consume living ideas which emanate from Christ himself. And the reason why our analogy needs to be the table and not the construction site is because it helps us to better understand how Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are at the heart of the method. And that's just frankly something that Lev Vygotsky and Plato didn't understand. So if to close this, you know, for the questioner, if you're a Charlotte Mason educator, you need to understand that scaffolding is a why, it's a reason. Why, scaffolding is a why, it's a reason, it's not a what, it's not a thing. So if you're, if you're a Charlotte Mason educator, I, I would just encourage you to ask yourself just two questions. Number one, is the term scaffolding leading you to add things to your lessons that are not in Charlotte Mason's original method, but are you adding them because as Bestwater says, quote, we look for ways to scaffold. And then the second question I would ask, you know, maybe you answer no to the first question, but then the second question I would ask is, is the term scaffolding helping or hindering people new to the Charlotte Mason method to understand the organic, unified, banquet-oriented, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-driven nature of living lessons that are for all persons of all ages? And if your answer is no to, you know, either of those questions, then I would urge you to move away from the term scaffolding and to focus on other paradigms that I believe are more foundational and more correctly underlie Charlotte Mason's method. And uh, I mean, I'll be frank with you, I am a Charlotte Mason purist. And in my 16 years of studying Charlotte Mason's writings, I never have used the word scaffolding to describe any part of it. And I don't plan to change that anytime soon. Wow. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program. 